One of the best known hymns of praise in the Bible is known as the Magnificat, Mary's celebration, which is sung or recited countless times in cathedrals and churches the world over. But an examination of her words in the Magnificat reveals the Hebraic nature of Mary's understanding of how God had called her and how she praised God as her Savior. Through the centuries, the world has distorted Mary's hymn, but let's take a look at the real mother of Jesus as revealed in her magnificent Magnificat. The Jerusalem Channel is made possible by viewer support. Thanks for watching. Shalom, I'm Christine Dard. Have you ever stopped to consider the Jewishness of Mary's Magnificat? The Jewish mother of Jesus is worshipped all around the world, and there are countless idols and images of Mary in churches, roadsides, shrines, and mountaintops. But the portrait of Mary in the New Testament is one of a Jewish worshiper of God. The world has distorted Mary's story, but let's look at the real Mary as revealed in her magnificent Magnificat. The Song of Mary in the Gospel of Luke is popularly called the Magnificat from a Latin word in Luke chapter 1, 46, where she says, My soul magnifies the Lord, meaning to make mega, to enlarge, to cause something to swell or intensify. She greatly glorified God because the angel Gabriel had announced to her that she would become the mother of the Messiah and that no human man would have anything to do with the conception. And remember, nobody in Israel had heard from God or a word from an angel in hundreds of years. Yet, messianic hopes of deliverance ran high. So Gabriel's message was a lot to take in. And although Mary believed the angel, she didn't fully appreciate the reality of her situation, that she would become the mother of the long-awaited Messiah until she received prophetic confirmation. And that confirmation came from her cousin, Elizabeth. You see, the angel Gabriel had also informed Mary that nothing was impossible with God because her elderly cousin, Elizabeth, who was well known in the family for being barren, was now six months pregnant. As many of you may know, Elizabeth was destined to become the mother of John the Baptist a fiery preacher in the spirit of Elijah and the forerunner of Jesus. So, hoping for confirmation of the angel's message, Mary rushed off from her home in Nazareth to the hill country of Judea to visit her relative Elizabeth and investigate for herself the miracle of Elizabeth's pregnancy. And lo and behold, as soon as Mary arrived, she discovered that Elizabeth was indeed pregnant and Elizabeth confirmed Mary's own pregnancy with a loud prophetic voice saying that the baby in Elizabeth's womb, John the Baptist, had actually leapt at the sound of Mary's greeting. This is so fascinating because recently I saw a pro-life post on Facebook reminding us that a fetus was the first person to rejoice about the news of Jesus. Think about that. 
John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit while in his mother's womb. So this six-month-old fetus of John the Baptist jumped in confirmation that Mary was the mother of the Messiah. Well, Mary was so relieved to learn that the angel Gabriel's visit to her had not been some sort of hallucination. No doubt it was too early in her pregnancy for Mary to recognize any real changes in her physical body. Yet, when greeting Elizabeth, she received that wonderful confirmation of her own pregnancy. And so, in great relief and joy, Mary burst forth in a song of adoration, thanking God. Her Magnificat prophecy was absolutely chock-a-block with scriptures. Bible verses just tumbled out of her mouth and spirit. Mary became so encouraged and animated by Elizabeth's greeting that she overflowed with gratitude. So let's hear her words in Luke chapter 1, beginning with verse 46, where Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior, because he hath regarded the humility of his handmaiden. For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed, because he that is mighty hath done great things to me, and holy is his name. I want to pause here for a minute to say that this prophecy already demonstrates Mary's great knowledge of Scripture, because it closely follows Hannah's song in the Hebrew Bible found in 1 Samuel chapter 2. Mary's Magnificat continues, and his mercy is from generation unto generations to them that fear him. You see, Mary understands about the 13 attributes of God's mercy, which I'll talk about more in a minute. He hath showed might in his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the conceit of their heart. He hath put down the mighty from their seat and hath exalted the humble. Let's consider the fact that when Mary exuded these words of sheer relief and joy, she never dreamed that her prophecy would become a routine Roman Catholic Vespers prayer or an evening prayer in the Book of Common Prayer or that it would be sung during matins in the Orthodox churches because no churches existed. Mary's Magnificat is all about God's mercy and faithfulness to her people, the Jewish people. But recently, the European Court of Justice, the highest judicial body in the European Union, passed an undeniably anti-Semitic law requiring the labeling for the origin of all Jewish-made products from Judea, Samaria, East Jerusalem, and the Golan Heights. The decision reaffirmed that the European Union does not recognize Israel's sovereignty over the Holy Land areas I mentioned and granted to them by God. The EU added in a condescending way the fact that foodstuff comes from a settlement established in breach of international humanitarian law may be the subject of ethical assessments influencing consumers purchasing decisions. In other words, Europe's top judges rule that some European consumers might be too ethically refined to buy products made by Jews. Canada has also ruled that wines made in Judea and Samaria which the world, by the way, calls the West Bank, but the Bible called Judea and Samaria, these wines could not be labeled products of Israel. So, for the first time since the 1930s, 
Jews face a discriminatory international labeling scheme predicated on the fact that the Jews have no right to the land of Israel. But Mary, the mother of Jesus, knew better. This Magnificat speaks of God's eternal covenants with Abraham and his descendants. Mary prophesied all of this in the style of Hebrew poetry. She rejoiced that she had the unique honor of giving birth to the promised Messiah. She knew herself to be a sinner who needed a savior. I want you to note that she plainly said so in the Magnificat, and she rejoiced in the promised Messiah. She glorified the God of Israel for his power, holiness, and mercy. Because God had been faithful to his promise, she said, to our ancestors, Abraham, and his descendants forever. She's thanking God for the promise given by the angel Gabriel that Messiah's kingdom would be perpetual. And when mentioning Abraham and the fathers, Mary was thinking of King David, of whose family she was descended. And she was thinking of Isaac and his son Jacob, whose name was changed by God to Israel, of whose stock she was descended, and in whom the descendants would be called. And particularly, she referred to Father Abraham and to his descendants forever. To all of these generations, God had promised this mercy of a Savior and Redeemer. So Mary's approach to worship is authentically Jewish. And in the Magnificat, she sums up Bible history like a seasoned theologian. Her education, her spontaneous outburst of scripture, spoke volumes about her upbringing as well as her own intellect. When she said God brought down rulers from their thrones and had scattered the proud, she was thinking, no doubt, of proud men like Pharaoh at the time of the Exodus or Nebuchadnezzar. They were brought low by God because proud people can't worship God. They're too busy worshiping themselves. And that's why, by the way, James 4, 6 says in the New Testament, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble, grace to people like Mary. Her statement, he has filled the hungry with food with good things, was actually a quote from Psalm 107, verse 9. She worships God, who was a savior, who was saving her, who has saved generations in the past and will save in the future. And in Luke 1:55, she saw before her eyes all of redemptive history as a fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham and his offspring forever. That was the kind of prophetic vision the mother of our Lord had. And because of Genesis 12, Mary knew that God had promised to Abraham that he would bless the world through Abraham's descendants. Mary is saying, God who promised in the beginning, way back in the Torah, salvation to and through Abraham is bringing that salvation to pass by his mercy in my life. And he's going to do it in generations to come, just as he's done it in generations in the past. Because our God is a saving God. He's a savior. So the contents of Mary's Magnificat reveal that she was no doubt just a young teenage girl, but she had a heart and mind thoroughly saturated with the word of God. Her psalm contains repeated echoes of Hannah's prayers. In 1 Samuel, Hannah had prayed to God for a child, and God also worked wondrously in Hannah's life to provide her with a son named Samuel, who became one of the greatest prophets in Israel. 
The psalm that Mary pours out contains numerous references to the Torah, to the Psalms of David, and to the writings of the prophets. The Magnificat is a great testimony to her devotion. And by the way, there's a monastery near Jerusalem in Ein Kerem, a village that's considered to be the birthplace of John the Baptist. And there are tiles there of the Magnificat in most languages of the world. But the most prominent should be the Hebrew tile because of the Magnificat's Hebraic contents. Bible scholars have charted all of this for us. Mary begins, for example, in verse 46 by saying, My soul doth magnify the Lord. And this is her own rendition of Psalm 34, 2, which says, My soul shall make her boast in the Lord. Following on in verse 47, she added, And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. That phrase is Mary's commentary on Isaiah 45, 21, where the Almighty says, There is no God besides me, a just God and a Savior. And in verse 48, Mary says, He has regarded the low state of his handmaiden, which is an echo of Hannah's prayer for a child. Hannah prayed in 1 Samuel 1, 11, Oh God, look upon the affliction of your handmaiden and remember me and don't forget your handmaid. Mary is also quoting Psalm 136, verse 23, which says, God remembered us in our low estate, for his mercy endures forever. And in verse 48 of Luke 1, Mary prophesies, For behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. That was not a boast, but again, she was quoting scripture. For example, the Jewish matriarch Leah in Genesis 30, 13, after giving birth to Asher, exclaimed, Oh, I'm so happy for the daughters will call me blessed. You see, Mary didn't just come up with such a phrase about herself, but she was also remembering lyrics from the Song of Deborah in the book of Judges, chapter 5, which referred to the housewife Yael, who became the heroine of a famous battle in Israel. The Song of Deborah went like this, and all patriotic Jewish women like Mary knew this song. Most blessed among women is Yael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, most blessed of tent-dwelling women. You see, it was brave Yael who took out the enemy general by lulling him to sleep with milk and killing him with a tent peg. And for that bravery, she became the heroine. Well, in verse 49, Mary says, He that is mighty has done to me great things. And this wording is taken from the great triumphant Psalm 126, verse 3 which says the Lord has done great things for us, whereof we are glad. And then in verse 49, she says, And holy is his name, directly quoting Psalm 111, verse 9, which says, Holy and reverend is his name. Surely the Magnificat proves that Mary was steeped in and promoted the history of her people Israel. She certainly wasn't into replacement theology, as is so much of the church that venerates her. If she is the queen of heaven, it's not in any pagan sense, but in the sense that she's the queen mother of the messianic king, Jesus, descendant of David. You see, in the Hebrew scriptures, the mothers of Israel's kings were honored as queens. For example, in 1 Kings 2.19, Solomon had a throne brought for 
his mother, Bathsheba, and she sat down at his right hand. Well, Mary summarized God's redemptive history of mercy in the past. By carrying this great pregnancy, she knew she was experiencing mercy on behalf of her people for generations to come. In fact, the Jewish people often speak of what they call the 13 attributes of the mercy of God. These attributes are the words that God taught Moses for the people to say whenever they needed to ask for divine compassion and forgiveness. The 13 attributes of mercy were mentioned after the Exodus and after the tragic episode of worshiping the golden calf, after which God threatened to destroy his people. The 13 attributes of mercy are based on two lists of verses in Exodus chapter 34 and Micah chapter 7. First, let's listen to Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. It says, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. In verse 7, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And Micah chapter 7, verses 18 to 20, asks, Who is a God like you who pardons iniquity and passes over the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? who does not retain his anger forever because he delights in loving devotion. He will again have compassion on us. He will vanquish our iniquities. You will cast out all of our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show loyalty to Jacob and loving devotion to Abraham as you swore to our fathers from days of old. Well, that sounds a lot to me like the Magnificat of Mary. And according to those verses, the 13 attributes of God's mercy are the following. First of all, the Lord is merciful before a person sins, and then he's merciful after a sinner has gone astray. God is compassionate, filled with loving sympathy for human frailty. That's the third attribute, and he eases the punishment of the guilty. For God is gracious, showing mercy even to those who don't deserve it consoling the afflicted and raising up the oppressed. Number five, he's slow to anger, giving sinners ample time and space to repent. Also, he's abundant in kindness. He's kind even towards those who lack personal merits. Furthermore, another attribute is he's a God of truth. He never reneges on his word to reward those who serve him. Another attribute is that he's a forgiver of iniquity. God forgives intentional sin, resulting from an evil disposition as long as the sinner repents. And God is a forgiver of willful sin. God allows even those who commit a sin with the malicious intent of rebelling against and angering him, he gives them the opportunity to repent. Furthermore, God is a forgiver of errors. God forgives a sin committed out of carelessness, thoughtlessness, or apathy. And one of his Attributes of mercy is that he's a God who cleanses. God is merciful, gracious, and forgiving, wiping away the sins of those who truly repent. However, if one doesn't repent, God does not cleanse. And the last attribute I want 
to mention in this long list is that God is a preserver of kindness for thousands of generations. This means God remembers the deeds of the righteous for the benefit of their less virtuous generations of offspring. I've certainly believed that part of the blessing on my life is because of the righteous deeds that God remembers of my parents and my grandparents. And this is why the Jewish people constantly invoke the merits of their patriarchs. And in that regard, it's interesting to note that the New Testament does this also. For example, in Romans chapter 11, the Apostle Paul reminded the believers at Rome not to become puffed up and arrogant towards the Jewish people because he said they're beloved because of the patriarchs. So Jesus' mother Mary understands the theology of mercy and also she understands what many Christian pastors unfortunately do not, the theology of the Abrahamic covenant. It's very important to recognize that Mary understood that God had made an eternal pledge to Abraham, which he will never break, designed to bless all future generations. So is it any wonder that God chose Mary, this very Jewish mother, to mentor the Messiah, Mary, this young teenage girl? Nevertheless, she knew the God of Scripture. She knew the God of Israel in a deeply personal way because she knew his word and covenants. And those promises filled her thoughts and her heart. I like the way one preacher explained Mary's role when she said in verse 48 of Luke 1, All generations will call me blessed. The preacher said she was speaking of herself as the recipient of blessings, not the dispenser of blessings. She doesn't say all generations will look to me to bless them. No, she was saying the generations will consider me blessed because of what I've received. Mary is never the dispenser of blessing in orthodox doctrine. She's never the dispenser of divine grace. It's the Lord whom her soul magnifies in verse 46. It is God my Savior whom her spirit magnifies in verse 47. So Mary is a humble channel of God's grace and mercy. She is a handmaiden, and she refers to herself as a simple handmaiden, and she refers to Israel as God's servant. And this recalls the familiar name of Israel in Isaiah's prophecies. So Mary sees in the great wonder of her son's conception and birth the accomplishment of the hopes of all ages and an assurance of God's mercy forever for her people. At this point, she didn't prophesy about Messiah's sufferings, but she would be given an inkling of that later when Mary and Joseph took the baby Jesus to be dedicated in the temple and where the prophet Simeon forewarned her, he prophesied that a sword would pierce her heart. The will of God had to be progressively revealed in her life as it is in our individual lives. The commentaries say that certainly the blood of King David flowed in Mary's veins, but for many generations that royal race had lived in seclusion amongst the poor, cherishing the secret of its high descent, but living in a very low social status. And so she was humble, but she retained her humility. Some women, if informed that God had chosen them to be mother of Messiah, might have become proud. But that attitude is never seen in the scriptures in Mary. 
The scriptures say that she pondered and treasured these things in her heart. And she admitted she was a sinner. She's often called by theologians the new Eve, yet Mary knew, like Eve, she was a sinner and needed the Savior. She counted on God's mercy, not on any merit of her own. Consider verse 49 of the Magnificat. What amazed Mary was that the Mighty One had done great things for her. She's saying, I'm no one special, yet all generations are going to count me as having been blessed by God because the Mighty One is condescending to give me this sacred trust of this child. And such was her humility. And I found every great man or woman of God to be like that, humble that God had deigned to choose them and work wonders through them. Before closing today, I want to remind you that even if a great person like Mary of Nazareth admitted she needed a Savior, what about me and what about you? Well, we all need the Savior, salvation from sin. We all need forgiveness and pardon. Even if we had sinned only once in our lives, that would still make us a sinner in need of a Savior. So a rabbi or a synagogue can't save you, a pope, a church, or a priest can't save you, a guru can't save you. Only the Savior can save sinners. Even the church cannot save you. And when we repent and confess our sins, putting our trust not in our own limited merits, but solely in the merits of the risen Lord Jesus, the Bible says His righteousness is imputed to us so that we can have perfect right standing with God Almighty. And that's the good news of the gospel. So the ABCs of the gospel are to admit you're a sinner, believe in and confess the Lord Jesus. This is my gospel, St. Paul said in 2 Timothy 2.8. Keep your mind on Jesus the Messiah, who was descended from King David and who was raised from the dead. That was also Mary's gospel in the Magnificat, that Jesus the Messiah was descended from David. And don't forget, she was present at the cross. She was an eyewitness to her son's death for sinners. And we know Mary was also a witness to his resurrection because Acts 1.14 informs us that Jesus' mother was amongst the 120 believers in the upper room in Jerusalem. The fact that Mary was present in the upper room after the Lord's ascension is evidence that she had seen the risen Lord and was regularly in the company of those who saw him after his resurrection. Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas and so forth, all the apostles with one accord continued in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus. And also, Acts 1.14 tells us, with his brothers who were now believers. But Mary was never prominent in the early church and she scarcely mentioned after the Gospels. She was simply the humble supporter of Jesus, the handmaiden of God. Well, it's my hope that this exploration of Mary has been helpful to your spiritual walk. For your further edification, we also publish a free ministry magazine called Exploits based on Daniel 11.32. We have articles about healing, deliverance, Bible prophecy, and end-time events. There's also a 24-7 library of video teachings at our website, exploits.tv, where you can also read about our anointed prayer conferences in Jerusalem. 
and we always enjoy sharing a conversation on the social media. So we invite you to download our free Jerusalem Channel app from your app store that has information about our videos, ebooks, and a Bible reading plan. Until next time, always contending for the faith and praying earnestly for the peace of Jerusalem. I'm Christine Dark. Shalom and Maranatha. What an amazing panorama of Jerusalem, the city of the great king. To the east is the Mount of Olives, and beyond that, the Judean wilderness, the Dead Sea, and the nation of Jordan, where presently 600,000 Syrian refugees have escaped. It's hard to imagine that right beyond this horizon, there is a holocaust going on amongst the Christian population of the Middle East. That's why the Jerusalem Channel has been created, to bring you a perspective of biblical events in the Middle East. When you visit our website every day, we have updates on news, prophecy, and what's happening and how it all tells us that Jesus is coming soon to establish His rule in this city. We want to invite you to become a supporter of the Jerusalem Channel. If you give in the United States, please know that your gift is tax deductible. And in the United Kingdom, we can claim gift aid on your donation. And so we invite you to get behind the Jerusalem Channel. There's never been a day like right now. We have so many opportunities to share the gospel in the remaining times of the Gentiles. Israel is rising again and God is visiting this nation. So stay in touch at exploits.tv. I'm Christine Doric. Shalom. <laughs>